<coughs> this is the third day of this July-August 2019 seven-day session. We'll return to our text from uh, yesterday and the day before, a book called Zen Essence, uh, which is a, an anthology of um, Chan, the teachings of Chan masters, famous Chan masters of the uh, Tang dynasty and the Sung dynasty. <clears throat> we left off with, uh, uh, with a Zen master, Fai En. Tenth uh, century. He says, <clears throat> Zen is not founded or sustained on the premise that there is a doctrine to be transmitted. It's just a matter of direct guidance to the human mind, perception of its essence, and achievement of awakening. How could there be any sectarian styles to be valued? So not... It's not no doctrine to be transmitted. It's not, it, it, Zen teaching is not a conventional teaching in the sense of uh, instructing, um, imparting knowledge, doctrine or otherwise. It's getting, helping people um, learn to experience things directly. That's all. Very simple. Very difficult, but simple. He says there were differences in the modes of teaching set up by later Zen teachers, and there were both tradition and change. The methods employed by a number of famous Zen masters came to be continued as traditions, to the point where their descendants became sectarians and did not get to the original reality. So he's talking about uh, different lineages and uh, how they can uh, get become rivalrous. Eventually they made many digressions, contradicting and attacking each other. They do not distinguish the profound from the superficial and do not know that the great way has no sides and the streams of truth have the same flavor. I just uh, was reading a book about the transmission of Zen from China to Japan. That's how, that's one, one major step in its migration from China to Japan. Another was China to Korea. And the biggest one is now Asia to here to the west, but in that uh, that those early years of Zen in Japan, we're talking about the uh, the thirteenth century time of Dogen and his uh, successors. Uh, the government got involved, as as it had been in China, by the way. The government uh, laid down certain rules. 
where they they only recognized uh, two lineages, uh, the Rinzai and the Soto. And they were, according to what I read, they were wary, they were concerned about any offshoots, any other uh, streams uh, that might somehow um, influence sectarian life. The, the government cut into the power of the government. I think you see the same thing uh, in contemporary China where they came down with such a vengeance on the Falun Gong, uh, this some kind of a composite uh, spiritual-like practice, has some elements of maybe of um, uh, body work, of maybe something related, not not Tai Chi, but something similar, maybe, and uh, they will not tolerate. Falun Gong, and uh, according to this this scholastic work, it was the same in the early years of of Japan, where uh, it was, you're either Soto or Rinzai, and there's nothing else. And and as for those two, never the twain shall meet. And that continued, and that it still continues to this day, more or less. Whereas Roshi Kaplow said it's. It's either Rinzai or Soto, and uh, pick, pick, don't mix them. But then our predecessors, Harada, Sogaku Roshi, and his disciple, Yasutani Roshi, and, and then Roshi Kaplo, uh, have practiced and taught this integral, what's been called integral Zen, where we try to draw a good, uh, effective uh, elements of both the Rinzai and Soto, and put them together. Um, and this, uh, Harada Roshi and Yasutani Roshi were denounced in in Japan for for doing this. It is the most American of things to do. You take the the best of different traditions, and you come up with a a mixture. Now, in some things, there's a danger in doing that. Where you're, you're, you sort of, it's like falling between two stools, but not, I don't see it at all in the matter of just finding the, uh, what's, what's good about each of the two. So, for example, in the Soto uh, school, uh, enlightenment, awakening is, is almost forbidden as a word. You don't want to, talk about enlightenment because then you're dividing the indivisible that fundamentally we're all enlightened and why are you bringing in these terms of enlightened or unenlightened that's more the classic Soto tradition and of course the the problem with it is uh, that there's not an acknowledgement of the reality of awakening the terrible deficit and not just not acknowledging it but not even requiring it to be a Soto Zen teacher very often, as a rule, with exceptions. And then the Rinzai, uh, from our perspective, has its own imbalance where 
And there can be a kind of an obsession about awakening where there is not enough acknowledgement that we are all fundamentally enlightened. And there isn't anything uh, to be attained. And so what we've done here over the years is, is to not deny the possibility of awakening, which is open to everyone without exception, but at the same time uh, not to, to employ the more um, fierce, martial uh, aspects of that, that of where the idea is that uh, it's something that has to be um, pressured to in, people into who not, may not uh, be ready for that. This is one example of how we can try to draw the the best of both the Rinzai and the Soto. In China, this division between uh, the well, the Chinese words are the Lin Qi school and the Kaodong uh, school. Kaodong is Soto, Lin Qi is Rinzai, and they didn't have this hard and fast uh, segregation of the two. There was more of a cross fertilization and and um, bringing different elements together. And in that, in that respect, I think uh, Western Zen is is more similar to Chan than to Zen. That's our it's our kind of our in in our national grain to combine things. Fayen goes on, Zen teachers need first to distinguish false and true, then they must clearly understand the time. Well, the distinguishing false and true means seeing into uh, the true nature of existence, having at least some degree of awakening. And then they must clearly understand the time, meaning to to be able, on the basis of having having seen into the formlessness of form, the formlessness of all forms, all traditions, all systems, all lineages, having seen into that, then to accommodate the Dharma to the place, to the people, and to the time, to adapt. Here, too, in our own lineage, uh, Roshi Kaplow really never uh, never asked people to learn to eat with chopsticks. Um, I think that's perfectly um, sensible. And, uh, and we don't, we also don't, sort of related to that is, for our meals, we don't use orioki. Orioki is the Nesting, the eating with nesting bowls of your own that you just wipe down and, and, uh, the advantage of them is you don't have, there's no dishwashing, uh, but, uh, 
and other things. It's a really a very, uh, elegant and an elegantly simple way of of eating with these nesting bowls. But then uh, it just I feel and Roshid Kaplo too. It just becomes another uh, exotic element of um, that people can mistake for the essence. I know uh, other Zen centers uh, used to, maybe still somewhat, uh, are taken aback that we don't eat with, with orioki, but that's what we're going to stick with. Now, Zen master Fen Yang also. Uh, 10th century, a little into the 11th century. These are arranged chronologically, more or less. Someone asked Fen Yang, what is the work of a teaching master? Fen Yang replied, impersonally guiding those with affinity. Impersonally doesn't mean um, it means with with detachment, uh, not being uh, biased, not getting caught in um, personal or subjective likes or dislikes, but guiding those with affinity. It's one of my favorite words. Uh, in speaking of uh, the Dharma, that uh, anyone we we have association with are people with whom we have an affinity. You could say karmic affinity, but it sort of goes without saying. So all of us here now in this room. We have a a strong affinity with one another, all of us. Just the evidence of that, that we're spending a whole week here together. That's a remarkably strong affinity. Another word for affinity is connection, karmic connection. Student and teacher just one of each uh, are in are in that relationship because of affinity and when if when the affinity uh, exhausts itself then they will part it's really the same with any relationship of a teaching master. The Buddha said, the strength of a spiritual teacher is his patience. I think it's once you've seen that every student 
is essentially enlightened, then it's, it moves beyond patience. You don't need to be patient when you know that everyone from the very beginning has never lacked a single thing. Everyone is endowed with this enlightened nature. The student doesn't have to awaken for that to be the case, whether or not they awaken to it. You see them as perfectly whole and complete. There are different ways that teachers have, have answered this, this same question. Is the work of a teacher? Another one that I like is, uh, um, I can't remember who said this, doesn't matter, and it's in, in what it says. It's just, I share with others what I do seriously for myself. And then Fen Yang also brings forth here this marvelous metaphor. The original Buddha nature of all living beings is like the bright moon in the sky. It is only because it is covered by floating clouds that it cannot appear. He also said, when will you ever stop competing? Before you realize it, the scenery of spring has turned to autumn. The leaves fall, the geese migrate, the frost gradually grows colder. Clothed and shod, what more do you seek? When we ever stop competing, it reminds me of a question that comes up every once in a while in Sashin where a newcomer will, will ask, uh, why do people run to Doksan? And uh, the, only, the only answer I've ever been able to come up with is uh, because apparently people, it's fun to run. <laughs> when you're sitting... 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day, you get a chance to run. Yay, run. <laughs> I mean, if it's, if it's a large session, then uh, not everyone may get into Doksan, and so there is something of a supply and demand issue about time, and uh, people who are determined uh, feel strong and they need to go. I don't want to be left behind, but... Uh, that's not so often the case now. Even this is the unusually uh, small session, but even more, more the average size people, uh, everyone pretty much gets to go to at least two, um, and often three a day if they if they want wanted to. Well, maybe because not everyone tries to go to every single doksan, we've got some um, extra time.
I think there's nothing there's nothing uh, inherently wrong with competition. Uh, also, because it's fun, even in, in sports, the problem becomes when we get attached to winning. This is like uh, having likes and dislikes, having preferences. Of course, we have preferences. We all have preferences in many things: clothes, colors, uh, cereals, breakfast cereals. We're not trying to become machines. We have preferences. Uh, the the problem is only when we become attached to them and we demand that we get what our our favorites are and can't, when we're miserable and we can't get them. Same with competition. It uh, brings in an element of of uh, it, it it has a way of uh, pushing us beyond ourselves, our our performance. As long as we can just uh, let it go by whatever happens. I felt there's a lot of Zen in uh, this uh, famous statement uh, in, at the uh, Wimbledon tennis courts uh, as the players come through the, this tunnel and they come out into the court. It's a quote by Rudyard Kipling, uh, meeting with triumph and disaster and treating those two imposters the same. Again, Fen Yang, when you know the mind, mind is Buddha. If you don't know it, it's the devil. Devil and Buddha are products of one mind. Buddha is real, the devil is madness. Devil, we can understand as uh, anything that seems to be a threat or a menace. And that can mean makyo sometimes. Uh, makyo, surely everyone knows that word. It means, basically, it means a, uh, a side effect, an unusual physical or mental or emotional side effect of sitting and makyo are most more common in sashin than outside sashin because uh, they usually arise when we're working very intensely. Um, so makyo, uh, if we, when he says, when you know the mind, mind is Buddha, knowing the mind means knowing uh, that there's there's nothing to the mind, that there is no substance to it. Seeing seeing the non-substantiality of the mind, when we see that, then it is beyond anything, beyond all limitations. It's Buddha. Buddha, Buddha nature just means that it's the nature of everything to become Buddha. To awaken. It also means, in the same sense, that there's no thing there. It's everything is uh, is subject to change. So, if we know the mind, if we see into this, then we 
uh, well, generally, usually, uh, see Machiel for what it is, which is just a, just a, a conditional, temporary, passing state of mind or body, body-mind. And when we see that, when we have that uh, presence of mind, when we can see it from that perspective as really just a temporary uh, phenomenon, uh, then it loses its ability to menace us. Another way to understand devil in this, this use of the word, it's anything that we see as opposing us, as our enemy. And once we've, once we've seen into the nature of mind, it's Buddha, our own Buddha nature, then we don't buy into that that anything would oppose us or really ultimately be our, our enemy. There's this uh, famous story where Hakuin is confronted by a samurai, fierce uh, samurai warrior, and uh, the warrior says to him, uh, "Is there really a heaven and a hell?" And uh, Hakuin sizes up and sizes him up in a glance, and says, "Who's asking you?" Idiot, you sniveling little piece of turd. And the, the, the samurai's face flushes and he reaches for his sword. And, he, and Hakuin says, that's hell. And then the samurai realizes what Hakuin is teaching. And he makes a bow of gratitude and Hakuin says, and that's heaven. Devil and Buddha are products of one mind. It's another one. Few people believe that their inherent mind is Buddha. Remember always, Buddha it means um, awakening. Buddha nature <clears throat> would be a good, a good substitute for. <clears throat> let's, let's, let's plug that in. Few people believe that their their inherent mind is Buddha nature. Most will not take this seriously, and therefore are bound. They are wrapped up in illusions, cravings, resentments, and other afflictions all because they love the cave of ignorance. They love the cave of ignorance. This is very often the case, is, is that uh, until awakening we prefer uh, the known, the familiar, as, as perverse as that seems. Uh, at least it's, some, it's, it's, it's not as... Frightening, potentially disturbing, as the unknown. Yes, it may cause us a lot of misery. This uh, 
dualistic mind, this ego consciousness, but at least it's familiar ground to us. And, and we too often dread venturing beyond it. And so we cling to it. I mean, the evidence is there that we're clinging all the time to the I. To the I, the me, and the my. That's what he means. They love ignorance. It's hard to deny that. We may have the strongest aspiration to, uh, to get beyond that. Uh, but that means following through with it and not allowing ourselves to continually dwell in thoughts of self and other. I always sometimes say to people, in, in what do you have faith? In your thoughts and feelings or in the practice you're working on? If we continually uh, insist on dwelling in our thoughts, then clearly we have more faith in those. But faith is a dynamic thing. It changes. So all of us uh, in our early, uh, earlier practice uh, seem to have more faith in our thoughts. But then over time that changes and we come to see the wonderful things <clears throat> that happen when we can invest our attention in what is beyond thoughts the breath, the koan. He says, when you suddenly realize the source of mind, you open a box of jewels. Honorable on earth and in the heavens, you are aloof even from the joy of meditation. The essence containing all flavors is the supreme delicacy worth more than 10,000 ounces of pure gold. You are aloof even from the joy of meditation. In other words, you don't become attached to the joy, uh, the bliss of uh, deep states of Zazen. When you are deluded and full of doubt, Even a thousand books of sutras are still not enough. When you have realized understanding, even one word is already too much. Here's the warning about making reading a substitute for the actual practice of sitting and moving zazen. When you're settled in Zen, your mind is serene, unaffected by worldly distractions. You enter the realm of enlightenment and transcend the ordinary world, leaving the world while in the midst of society. 
this is the the ultimate uh, achievement, if you will, is um, as a, as a, one of the uh, desert fathers, the Christian desert fathers put it, to be in the world but not of the world, to function like any ordinary person uh, without being uh, stained by worldly attachments. It's the there's the. Uh, the analogy of the lotus emerging from the mud. Uh, it's uh, none of the mud uh, adheres to it. It emerges pure and lustrous. This is, of course, a very advanced state. Transcending the ordinary, transcending, not leaving, not turning your back necessarily and secluding yourself in the mountains. That's, that's, that works for very rare people. But uh, being in the world, business, whatever your job is, Next is uh, uh, Shuedo. His uh, Japanese name is Secho, who uh, whose name appears in throughout the uh, the Blue Cliff record. He, was, uh, he compiled uh, the, the Blue Cliff record. The other one is Yuan Wu, who is considered the author of the uh, Blue Cliff record. Someone asked Shuedo. What is the living meaning of Zen? Shuido said, The mountains are high, the oceans are wide. He says, The wise boldly pick up a truth as soon as they hear it. Don't wait for a moment or you lose your head. We recognize something as true when it, 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 when it's an echo of our own inherent wisdom. But it all comes down to the ripeness of our of our mind, the ripeness of our our karma. We can hear the truth in a thousand ways for years and years, decades, and still not have it, not really grasp it. And then, as we change, as the mind becomes more pure, which means open, as we're we have learned to let go of our obstructive ideas, uh, then all of a sudden what we've heard a thousand times is just as plain as day, and there is the understanding. Timing. Timing. We never know, though. We never know when the mind is is 
about to turn. It can actually, we can be, we can feel, we can imagine that our mind is completely obscured, uh, but the, 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 the veil, the obscuration can, can actually be very, very thin. And at any moment, uh, we can wake up. In Sashin, these, these clouds in the mind, the clouds of thought become thinner and thinner as the days pass. Someone asked Shwedo, what is your manner of teaching? Shwedo replied, when guests come, one should see them. This is a, a interesting little play, of, play on words. Um, guests in Zen parlance, we, we can distinguish between host and guest. Uh, so the host is this essential nature of ours. The guests are any number of uh, states of mind, um, the come and go, discouragement. It's just a guess. It may linger. It always lingers longer than we want it to, but eventually it moves on. Tiredness. Makyo. Makyo are guests. And he says, when guests come, one should see them. See, you can understand see to mean receive. When guests come, one should receive them. That sounds uh, like it might come have come out of Confucian culture. Yes, when guests come, you, you receive them. But here, we can see this as when, when anything other than the essential truth, the essential reality, we should recognize as just adventitious phenomena that is adventitious meaning anything that that uh, comes and goes appearances illusions illusions in the sense of not being permanent this is the key thing now that we're into the third day also we can expect that uh, more people will <coughs> encounter Machio these, these transitory states it can be uh, wonderful, it can be frightening, it can be uh, all kinds of elevated states. And uh, as long as we see them for what they are, which is just passing through, then we're not going to get snared by them. But that's the key thing, is when we have a makyo, it can be also, of course, uh, hallucinations. To see them as makyo, see them as just guests. If, we've, if, we're, if we're not deceived by them, then they lose their... They have, they have no real power over us. The key thing is to have that presence of mind when they're happening. Too often, if something, some makyo just blossoms up before us, uh, you know, then uh, we can be thrown by it. Uh, we have all kinds of reactions to it. Oh my God, what is this? 
what's am I going crazy or, or is this uh, uh, is this leading me away or or here's another makyo ah this is it I must be you know ready to awaken at any moment but if we can have the distance the detachment to see oh yeah this is just one of these things that uh, comes and goes then we can uh, not get caught by it. This is a story that some of you probably have heard me read before. Once there was a Zen elder who didn't talk to his group at all during a retreat. One of the groups said, This way I've wasted the whole retreat. I don't expect the teacher to explain the Dharma, but it would be nice at least to hear the two words, absolute truth. The the teacher heard of this and said, Don't be so quick to complain. There's not even a single word to say about absolute truth. Then, as soon as he said this, he gnashed his teeth and said, It was pointless to say even that. And then in the next room, there was another uh, senior uh, practitioner who overheard this and said, a fine pot of soup befouled by two rat droppings. You know, when you hear references like this, we can well imagine that uh, the conditions of these monasteries uh, were pretty primitive and pretty rough. Soup befouled by rat droppings is not a stretch of the imagination to know that that's, that is something that would not have been so rare. Uh, Roshi Kaplow uh, has told the story of sitting up during Yaza deep into the night at Hoshinji uh, and... Um, having a partner, another monk monk sitting there with him. And in the middle of the night, uh, there was a scampering across the beams in the zendo. There was one of the beams in the zendo had a rat uh, running across it. And he found out later that that sound, at that sound, the monk sitting with him had come to awakening. His mind was ripe. Kaplosan's was not yet ripe. And rest assured, we're not going to invite rats into this zendo. <laughs> Our time is up now. We'll stop and recite the four vows. Without number, I bow to liberate endless blind passions. I bow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I bow to penetrate 
the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attend.